0: Hello, welcome to PhysioNote Sounds. This is the Paediatric Physiotherapy Podcast. It is attached to Orthopaedic Research UK's courses in paediatric physiotherapy subjects. The next one is going to be in June 2022. I'm Gavin Spence, joining you from Cambridge in the UK. And Michaelis, you're in London. Now, our specialty is famous for being, I suppose you could say, a cottage industry, right? But there are efforts now for this to become a seriously academic pursuit. Academic orthopaedics was always a contradiction in terms, right? But uh, I, we have a special guest on our podcast today who, who proves that those days are gone. We're moving into new territory.
1: New territory it is, Gavin, indeed. We have Adam Galloway, who is a physiotherapist from Leeds, and he's taking this academic perspective, which uh, we're dying to uh, hear more about. Hi, Adam. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Absolute pleasure to have you
0: on. So tell us a little bit about the role that you're in at the moment and how you came to that role, your training in the past and uh, yeah, how you got to this academic position.
2: Yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, so I'm a, at the moment, I'm a children's physiotherapist and a, a clinical doctoral research fellow. Now that's a little bit of a mouthful that it comes with a disclaimer from the NIHR that I'm, I'm contractually bound to say that before because they're my funder. So the role at the moment is I'm one year into a four year PhD funded by the NIHR. Now, what that essentially means is that some of my time is spent clinically working the, you know, the, the routine shop floor physio role in the Children's Hospital in Leeds, and the other chunk of time is spent in the uh, the Institute of Rheumatic and Musculoskeletal Medicine within the School of Medicine at, at the University of Leeds, and that is an award that I st- like as I say I started a year ago. This all came around through some NIHR funded awards that I'd done previously. So I qualified as a as your traditional physio and then went into working on the wards. I actually started on the neurosurgical wards and found a little bit of a gap in practice where we, we weren't really using any outcome measures that were validated within this patient population. We had people, these were adults at the time, by you know, having brain surgery and then being discharged home. So I wanted to find an outcome measure that worked for them. There wasn't one. And as this is the, probably the theme of the of the next half an hour or so, is that the, this all snowballed. And it ended up becoming a, an MRes. So I did an nihr funded Masters in Clinical Research Methods and validated an outcome measure in the patient population. Now that was a, a great thing for me to do. I learned some really interesting and important research methodology skills. But it wasn't my patient population. I'm uh, I'm I'm never growing up. I'm always I was always destined to work work with kids and be able to act my age. I can't tell people to do squats. I need to tell them to do frog jumps. So. Over the last sort of three years, I've done an NIHR-funded pre-doctoral fellowship, which allowed me 50% of my time at the university and 50% clinical. Over the course of that two-year period, I've wrote a couple of studies that described certain things within the world of Perthys disease, which is my area of, of interest, and I was very fortunate in that my application was successful, and that's when I started the PhD a, a year ago. So, as I say, one year in uh, into that, and as a, a clinical academic in children's orthopedics, really enjoy enjoying it. So, how long is the PhD going to last? Do you think is it four years, three years? Yeah. So, with the with the NIHI, you have the opportunity to do the the PhD three years full time, as is sort of traditional with PhDs, if you want to. But I was very aware that uh, I'm relatively junior from a, a clinical point of view, and wanted to make sure that. My clinical academic trajectory wasn't, you know, sort of outweighed by the fact that I'd already done an MRes and then a, a pre-doc fellowship. Uh, if I'd have done a full-time PhD, I'd have been around 10 years qualified and about five of those would have been spent, well, six of those would have been spent doing fellowships. And my aim is to not be a sole clinician and equally not a sole academic. My, I think that I can have the biggest impact on my patients' quality of lives and their, and their outcomes by, by being having a foot in both camps. Um, so I chose to do the 80% route, so 20% of my time is, uh, is clinical, so I've been clinical today, and then the rest of the week is, is uh, university-based do, conducting the research, although there is a really good part of the NIHR clinical academic PhD is that you can use some of the time to carry out clinical responsibilities and development. So for instance, in Leeds, we started in the summer of last year a Perthes clinic in Leeds, so there's a consultant who works with me, Colin Holton, who has a specialist interest in HIPS as well. And we started a clinic once a month for children with Perthes in Leeds. We've cohorted those patients and they get seen in Leeds at a standalone clinic uh, where we have a consultant present, clinical nurse specialist, and myself as a specialist clinical academic physio within that, in that setting. So really good opportunity to be able to develop both of your clinical and academic skills during the PhD, because I think that was often the risk, wasn't it? Was that sometimes you step away from clinical practice and, and come back where you set off three years prior.
1: This is great, Adam. I think there's a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of listeners who might want to choose kind of the same pathway what you you're doing at the moment, kind of clinical academic and so on. So my question is, how easy or how difficult should I rather say was it to get the uh, NIHR funding, and how can can somebody go that way, and if that's not an option, what other options do we have? I mean, are, are there any pediatric PhDs? How did your journey start and how others can can start kind of a similar journey?
2: That's the best question that I think I can be asked because it's the most confident answer I'll give. Is that I'm really trying to make this known that research isn't for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but it absolutely is for anyone. Anybody can do it. And it doesn't have to be that you're going and doing RCTs internationally. But it, it can be that you can do it if you want to do it. So I've been fortunate enough to be asked to present for the NIHR recently on the pre-doctoral fellowship. Um, so we did a webinar myself, uh, Professor John Marsden, who's the chair of the selection committee for the, for the award, and Dr Beth Harris, who's the programme lead. And we did a webinar where I talked about my experiences of, of the PCAF is what it's called, and the pre-doctoral clinical academic fellowship. Now in my mind that is the most generous award that there is because it's 50% of your time and your salary back to your boss, so they're not worried about you backfilling, so they backfill you. Your only deliverable is to write an application for the PhD. So mine was really, really useful because I wrote did the case review where I looked at a couple of centres around the UK that describe variation of care in the UK. Nothing clinically unreasonable, you know, we're not out there stating what people are doing. Everybody does it with the best intention and good clinical reason. but variation of care. And we know we do better in conditions when we've got consensus and agreement. The second piece of work was a systematic review. And the systematic review looked at the papers for non-surgical treatment for Perthes. And it showed that there was nothing to support one technique over another. Again, nothing particularly bad, but nothing that that made you think we definitely should be doing this compared to anything else. Put those two together, combined with the fact that BISCOS, the, the the Children's Surgery Society, was saying, we need to have a look at birthies, And the James Lind Alliance was saying, we need to, you know, we need to prioritize some research into this area. That all pointed towards a PhD. So it is difficult. They're very coveted. There's about 165 applicants per year for a a CDRF that I'm on, and only 20 were awarded this in the year that I was successful. So it is competitive. But for good reason, because a PhD, mine, for example, this is public information, you can Google me, (laughs) Uh, and you can find you can find this out is about four hundred thousand pound. Now that's our money, that's taxpayers' money, and it's got to equate to p- better patient outcomes and better service delivery. And honestly, I'm obviously I'm biased, but honestly, I believe that that will because we're going to have some really decent answers on what we should or shouldn't be doing for these this group of kids. But. It's all for that we that we know that it's doable. So in a, in a shameless plug, because the interesting stuff comes from the guys running the award, that webinar is really easy to find. NIHR, PCAF webinar is the top result. And it very much points the light on why research is doable. And that's my only thing to pay forward, I think.
1: What a great answer, Gavin, isn't it? I mean, I'm going to check that link myself because I'm very interested into this. But I have to say to our listeners that this is how I got introduced to Adam via your systematic study, which I teach on the courses. I, I'm, I'm a hip specialist myself, and, and, and I think it's, it's a great study. And uh, the research that you're delivering, it was a great message uh, that, that came from it, plus all the other studies that, that come, which maybe you have time to discuss about this later on today. If not, then it's going to come on our webinar series. We're going to be delighted to have you in our panel to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. This. Adam, can I just ask you what a typical week looks like
0: for you as uh, somebody interested in clinical work and in the academic side? Can you just run us through what you would do Monday to Friday?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm actually really quite happy to to talk through what I what I do because of the the benefits of. Of, you know, what our adaptability has been challenged over the last couple of years. Um, so my clinical world used to be four long days. So I got quite used to that, actually, for a work-life balance point of view. Having the, the three-day weekend, but, you know, cramming your hours and condensing your hours into four days worked really well for me. So on a, a standard week, as long as things permit... I'll try and work for four days and do and, and do longer days and that's because I can get the work in and often when I get into a little bit of a into a bit of a routine as I said self-professed nerd once I get going I'm sometimes I can be I can just sort of crack on and do the long days and I don't mind because I'm genuinely excited to be doing what I'm doing So typically I'll work uh, Tuesday and Wednesday are academic days. Um, Tuesday I'll typically be at home because I know a lot of the supervisory team don't go into the, uh, into the unit at the, at the BRC and that's a good day for me to catch up on things like so at the minute I'm in a qualitative interview phase so I've been do, conducting some interviews and I've also been doing some coding. Uh, which is very new to me. I'm not a qualitative researcher by trade. I'm, I'm learning that that's where we find some really, really interesting answers. I've been interviewing kids and parents over the last like week or so because it's the Easter holiday, so I've been catching them while they're in between the breaks of them not going on the trampoline. And so that's, so that's typically what we've been doing. Wednesday, I'll generally go into the, uh, into the unit because that's when a lot do that it's nice to see people face to face after a long time away and um, so again spend some time in there having some meetings and some catching up I'm asking for quite a decent amount of support with stuff like the qualitative analysis so over the last couple of weeks that's what we've been doing spending some time together going through old school with the, you know with the with the transcripts of the interviews and looking at what the themes are that are coming out of out of the interviews with these key stakeholders the kids the families we've been interviewing surgeons and physios um, and nurse specialists that's been really interesting Thursday is typically my clinical day, so my clinical responsibilities have not particularly changed. So I'm a I'm a rotational band six physio for uh, in my NHS contract. So I rotate like the rest of my colleagues at a band six level. I've recently rotated from the orthopaedic outpatient setting, which was obviously quite you know relevant to my to my PhD clinically, and I've recently been working with the neuromuscular team, not. The same patient population, but loads of transferable skills that I'll that you know that I'll learn there from understanding different patient groups and what they might be like. For example, I get to spend a lot of time with a, a really experienced uh, specialist children's physio, Lindsay Pollant, who leads neuromuscular uh, physio trials in the UK for kids with muscular uh, muscular dystrophy, and she leads quite a lot of those like the Duchenne boys trials, and, and that's great because that's practical research that every so saw you know being able to take the, the practical skills from from every every sense of uh, of my of my work and then similarly friday is either an academic day where i'll be at the unit or at home working away on stuff or if it falls on the friday it's when the perthies clinic is is running um, which is great. I get in early, and we do some clinic prep before before the kids turn up. And I've managed to get some, you know, clinical progression in there in f- f- simple things like the logistics of physios in our trust are not weren't there uh, You know, permitted to request X rays. It would go through a consultant, but actually that was slowing us down quite a bit. So I've I've done some training on on the requesting of X rays with support from the uh, clinician, and over time that you know that will just improve the the efficiency of, of, of the clinic then we'd carry out the clinic and we'd do some uh, case discussions afterwards uh, if we if we need to so and that's an average week. So who comes to this Perthes clinic these are people
0: recruited for your trials?
2: Yes yeah, so I've uh, so for the first work stream which is the the qualitative interview study I've been able to recruit from the uh, that clinic directly yeah um, which is perfect because I'm again I'm learning the clinical skills and I'm trying to understand a little bit more of the MDT approach to, to caring for these kids clinically but also, they're right in front of me. For you know, I'm able to see. Actually, you'd be a really great participant for this for this study. I'd be really interested to know more about you. This isn't the time or the place. You need time to go away and consider whether you want to be involved. Similarly, this is a busy this is a very busy, busy clinic. Can I give you a little bit of information? Have a think about it. Come back to me. And all that, and, and if it works, great. We'll we'll speak to you soon. So that's been that's been really
1: useful. So Adam, we had podcasts with highly specialists, highly specialists in club fit in DDH, you're doing perfect, and you're probably the only one, am I right, kind of in the UK who does this. So do you see this as a specialty, pediatric specialty that other physiotherapists in other tertiary referral hospitals should do? For example, I do a monthly hip adolescent clinic. I don't have a physio next to me, but I'd love to have one. Uh, In my eyes, that's the vision. But is this Do you you see what you're doing become like a role model for other physios? Do you think that's the way forward? And and the other thing is, if yes, how can we justify this, you know, the MDT approach to Perthes? Because, I mean, look at the children that I treat with Perthes. I mean, they end up with non-specialized physiotherapists, but I don't think there are a lot of people around like yourself who know exactly what to do, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and again, there's probably a bit of a disclaimer that I should put with it. You know, I've been a a children's physio since 2016, but truly, I'm the Perthes geek, not the Perthes expert. I'm working towards becoming the Perthes expert. That's my aim. That's my passion. and, And I'll get there but the whole reason for this first work workstream doing the qualitative interviews I'm getting I'm interviewing clinicians as well as the kids and the families I'm interviewing uh, specialist physios who've been physios for you know 20 years looking after these kids uh, surgeons who are doing the same the clinical nurse specialists who are the ones on the phone to the mums and the dads and the aunts and the uncles you know when they say my kids in pain and has been for a couple of days now you know I'm speaking to the to the true experts I feel like I'm just the guy who's who's funneling all of this information back together to make sure that we have the best outcome for them, and anything that I'm trying to design. So the intervention within this uh, the PhD is, a, is an app. And that's got to be content derived from the, tr- the true experts. Now, the hope is that over the course of the next, you know, I've got, what, two and a half years left, is that I'll develop a lot of clinical skills as well as the academic skills that will, will put me more into that category. I'm also collecting some data within these clinics to be able to prove to Local management at my trust that you know this is worthwhile, we're we're getting good outcomes from that. And so, I'm working with uh, Colin Halton, the the surgeon who I work with uh, within the children's hospital, also, uh, you know, is is the clinical director of Leeds Children's Hospital, so he knows what outcomes we need to be hitting. So, that's a really good position for me to be in personally. But then again, what what better way to be able to demonstrate that it works and then take it to places like BISCOS, to the APCP, the, you know, the Children's Physio Society, to all our UK and say, well, listen, we did this. It worked. And if it works or, or equally, you know, hands up, if it didn't work, we did this. We spent a lot of time and effort and resources. And it didn't work. So don't worry about it if you're not seeing the specialist physios. I think we've got to be honest with that. That's the true research way, isn't it?
0: So everybody's interested or or claims to be interested in evidence based practice. And and you're right in the forefront of that. You know, I've seen this massive change in the last few years where research is the old style research has been, you know, underpowered studies. Nobody's interested in that stuff anymore. Thank goodness. Good riddance. But I'm curious what your thoughts are about when you do quality research as you are doing and you might say this is not your problem, but how do you then change hearts and minds with that research? how How do you get people to change their practice? You mentioned collaboration with BISCOS and APCP, but are there other ways of doing it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually think that the the, the true way to do it is the way that my project is called the Non Stop Project, so the non surgical treatment of perthes. I'd love to be able to credit to be able to take credit for coming up with that, but it, it wasn't. I'll touch on that in a little bit. It was uh, it was PPI work as as ever as it ever is. But qualitative research is is the you know the, the rich information, but it has to be a part of something that we can really take you know back to to service m- service managers, service delivery, and objective outcomes that are that are important as well. So my project, the nonstop project, is a mixed methods approach. So the first workstream is the is the interview study. We'll get some really meaningful information from the key stakeholders, so kids, families, and the the clinicians looking after them. The next step is the app. So we, I was told in the PCAF that we should do it we should do app by the ppi the ppi group so the patient and public involvement for me was a young person's advisory group in Alderhair and where i'd gone on the you know advice and support of professor dan perry who's a, a my one of my phd supervisors so i went to the went to the group and came and i said listen you know i'm thinking of a, of a, a project that would desire that would have something designed in it that would be really useful for you guys for when you you know for kids who don't have surgery for perthes you know, I'm thinking about a website that could be something to to support you, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, telling these kids, and they're looking at me like I like I've like I was stupid. What's a website? Why would you use a website? Can I use it? Can I do it on my iPad? Could I not? Could I do this on my phone? And I said, Well, yeah. They said, Could it be an app? Well, of course, it could be an app. It can be what you know. It, it's for you. It's not for me. So they said, well, well, I do I do Maths Rockstar. I you know I do that. As, that's an app. I use I, I use my iPad for that. Right, great. We'll do an app. So we're doing we're doing an app. That's because that's what the the people who matter, the people who are going to use it. That's what they're going to. That's what they're going to use. And that was that's really important. That's really the you know the key to make sure that that's going to be the case the next step of that is to actually develop it so coming up soon hopefully by by summertime if not early autumn is going to be a consensus study so a delphi study where we look at what the exact content of that app will look like it'll be informed by the interviews with the parents and the uh, and the kids and the and the clinicians but also we'll be going out to wider sort of spectrum clinical specialties like BISCOS, APCP, however we need to. I've used Twitter, Twitter. the recruitment from Twitter has been amazing. And within this consensus uh, study, the Del- using the Delphi, we'll find out what absolutely has to be in an app, and then we go to testing. And the next step after that we've you know got a design, a, a trial version of the app is to test the app and the methods of a, of a study that would test app versus standard care. And then you start to have meaningful results combined with the qualitative stuff, the pretty stuff that you can take back to service delivery. And people like if you know if you're creating an app that's not free. So being able to say this is this is it this is work we need to test this really robustly. That's the that's the stuff you take back, and that's how you change minds. I think
1: that's very very clever. I just ask very quickly. So the app will the main users of the app will it be both children but also clinicians? And when I say clinicians. Both physios and surgeons. So, what is the vision there?
2: So, I mean, the easy answer to that is we don't know yet because we're still halfway through these interviews. And what we're hearing from the, you know, the early sort of results, so they they you know, the, what families are telling us, what kids are telling us, and what clinicians are telling us is they all want a bit. They all want to be able to use it. Now, we all want different things from it. Clinicians want information coming back to them, but we're aware that some. Clinicians won't want that. Similarly, some patients want to be able to communicate with the clinicians that they're involved with, but equally some don't. Some just want to have something that they can have. At what point does, uh, does a child uh, you know, ever have a real chance to be the boss of something? I, I know that as a grown-up, I'm rarely the boss of anything. So if we can give them that independence with a self-management app, then that would be really, really good. And the good thing is, is that as much as we don't know, that's not because we don't know that, and that's it. It's because it can be anything we want it to be, and it's going to be informed by the people who who matter. I think the way that it would head is, it's it's going to be self management. That's the case because it's not going to replace anything. It's going to be supplementary to what happens at the moment, but based on consensus, based on what the people who matter have told us.
0: I'm just curious, Adam, hearing you you talk about this. You know, your enthusiasm for it comes across. You know, it and it's infectious, actually what is it that really motivates you in all of this is it the getting to the ultimate truth of a confusing condition that nobody else truly understands or is it the creativity the free hand that you're given you know you want to create you want to create an app go ahead and create it find out the best way that you can do it or is it a combination of all of these things
2: I think it absolutely is a combination of of all of these things you know my i'd describe it as my x-factor story was i had a i had a kid the first kid i ever saw with this condition that i never thought you know i'd never heard of before was it was a twin and and, a, and the dominant twin and then all of a sudden they had this condition that they'd seen a, an orthopedic consultant and they were told that they weren't allowed on bouncy castles trampoline, and had to stop you know we had to be really mindful if they were going to do any contact sports and this kid goes immediately straight into the shell and i'm thinking hang on what well, how could we be the ones, physios, be the ones to tell this and you know, and monitor this? Because the, the consultant, rightly so, the consultant says, oh, I'll see you in six months, we'll see if anything's changed. Because they understand Perthes, they understand the disease process, and they know that they don't need to see them for six months. I'm thinking, hang on, this kid's getting worse and worse, they're losing range, he's limping, and he's becoming a shell of his former self, and the dominance within the twin, instead of being the big brother that looks after the sister... Is, has really swapped to a kid with you know who we had to get psychologists involved in, and I was sat there thinking I can't do anything for this child because it just doesn't feel right. I haven't got any research to support anything that I'm doing particularly. Nothing's causing any harm. don't get me wrong, but you know i can't I need to be able to do more than this or at least know that I could confidently say we don't need to do more than this. Um, and that was where it all really stemmed from. And then obviously in, in comes Dan Perry from Hey to recruit leads for as a site for the BOSS study that's obviously just, they've just uh, published amazing, you know, the results of the biggest surveillance study we've done in paediatric orthopaedics. Amazing. And I was thinking, hang on, this is this is the one. Um I don't know that either of us was particularly expecting the snowball that happened from that, from me going to a... We were just in an MDT, a weekly MDT X-ray review meeting, and, oh, there's Dan from the uh, from Hairs going to talk to us about this, and I had some questions at the end, and it, that is a, a really... That's the most effective snowball I think we have, uh, I've had because that, that, was, that was 2016, late 2016, just as boss started recruiting. And I, I think the enthusiasm f- for it going on is is that I've seen real change not in results yet or outcomes yet for parents but I'm doing lots of PPI with them who they're all saying that they even feel better and, re- and reassured that there are things like the non-stop PhD. it's a really you know PhD's not it's not an enormous world changing piece of research but it's it's finally someone hearing their voice and they feel represented you know this is a this is a condition that affects socially deprived families not all but you know a lot of socially deprived areas that haven't necessarily been heard in the past in, re- in research. We've also got real strong movement forward with uh, a recently announced HCA uh, call for a trial for surgery versus non-surgery. That so, you know with, with that's public again public information. We the first stage of that has has gone in. So that's re- you know that's really exciting. We're finally starting to make ground. So. Yeah there's peaks and troughs but I think that the peaks at the, at the moment with it especially within paediatric orthopedic research has just been phenomenal particularly over the last 18 months but certainly over the last two or three years that I've been involved in.
0: So where do you see yourself going from here then once you get your PhD out of the way what, what does the future hold for you do you think?
2: The the easiest answer for that is that I, I don't see myself being able to stop. I, I'm continuing to, to gather questions even as I'm going along in this part. You know, I'm regularly told to, to slow down and just take it one step at a time. Um, and again, that's that's from excitement and, and you know possibly a little bit of a <laughs> an attention issue. I don't know. But the, the NIHR, the the National Institute for Health and Care Research have got such a robust uh, pathway for for clinical academics of, you know, of nurses, midwives, allied health professionals and and other healthcare scientists and healthcare professionals. It's really well supported beyond PhD. That continues into then they've just changed names. So it used to be things like a, a clinical lecturer and a senior clinical lecturer. They've been amalgamated now into an advanced clinical practitioner academic fellowship. I hope I've got that right. And those awards allow you to continue progressing and you know carry on with the rest of the the research that you might be looking at. But what an important thing for me to be doing for the future is Perthes is my, is my passion, but it's not enough to take up all of my my time eventually. The thing that I've had the most reward for personally is being able to bring other people along with me, so it's a new, it's a new thing for me. But even doing things like the webinar, doing things like this podcast, the opportunity to talk about your work, and if there's a chance for that to mean that somebody else feels comfortable uh, in in applying for something and and going for, and going for this, then that's the probably the biggest reward that I've had because that's how we change, you know, the the kids, the patients, the outcomes for them. So that's the stuff that I've, I can really see myself doing and develop as a clinical academic leader. But you know, bringing people through has been the most rewarding stuff so far. And I hope that continues to grow.
0: Well, I wish you all the luck in that journey. Adam, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and, and hearing about this. It's another type of extended role that we haven't heard about before for a, a paediatric physiotherapist. Really, I, I I salute your efforts. I, I'm I'm slightly um, in awe of what you've managed to achieve with your colleagues. It's It's been absolutely fantastic hearing about it. Michaelis,
1: would you agree? I mean, what a spectacular uh, podcast today. I'm I'm dying to hear more about the clinical stuff in the webinar as well. So we wish you all the best luck with uh, your project and the engagement of your patients. And yeah, hoping to catch up soon. But just one other really important question, which I wanted to ask you.
0: Um, You're a Yorkshireman, but you're a Manchester United fan.
2: (laughs) Yes, that's that's unusual. it is, it is unusual, and um, it's it, it's just through family backing. So my, my dad and all of his family are, are united through and through. Interestingly, my first ever expo- exposure to paediatric physiotherapy was working for Leeds United, and I think only have, having stopped a couple of seasons now, I think I'm probably only just safe in saying that for my first shift working at Leeds United, I had Man United boxer shorts on um, <laughs> because I didn't want the <laughs> kit to touch me. I was worried it would burn. Um, no, so... it. Yeah, well, it's, a dangerous world to, to be in.
0: <laughs> it's, it's too late now, Adam. I mean, this, this podcast going out, you know, internationally, everyone yeah. now knows. So, you know, yeah. you, you, you might not be safe. You know, they might take away your visa. You know, you won't be safe in Yorkshire. I've anymore.
2: heard the season ticket holders at Ellen Road do subscribe. Yeah.
0: So. <laughs> 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 of course they do they're, they're friends of the show all of them listen we better wind up Adam fantastic it's been great having you on the podcast thank you so much Michaelis as always thank you for your input and for everybody listening in I hope you've enjoyed that deep dive actually in in Adam's world thanks very much for listening we hope to have your company on another podcast in the future
2: goodbye